All right, so join me here and we'll, we'll pray. I'll explain a little bit what I wrote up there on the board, and then we'll just pick up right where we left off last week. <clears throat> uh, Lord, we give you this time this morning and ask you to continue to guide us and teach us as we read through this book and um, help us see more about yourself. Help us to also be open to receiving from you what we need for today. We recognize that we need to hear from you. We need instruction. We need guidance. We need encouragement. We need challenge. We need rebuke. We need, we need all of those things, correction from your word. And so we open ourselves up to that this morning. And we also ask you to bless our time in our um, service at, right after this um, for those that are getting ready that are coming give them safety as they come towards church and also bless our minds and our hearts with a, a turning towards you this morning and worship uh, with music and with the word ask these things in your name amen all right so i just made use a little bit of uh, of the time and drew a little bit on the board the um filled out a little bit more of the top section which are just the chapter divisions they're not you know um, sacred divisions, they're just more or less groupings that sort of, in essence, fit together, but they help you organize in your mind. It's a helpful thing to have in your mind where things are. This is something we don't often do with the Bible. I did that a lot with Isaiah for us to organize the subjects that are in there. And so some of it's relative. You know, you read it yourself, you figure out what, your, what groupings make sense for you. But as long as you're learning to think through each part of the book in light of the whole. That, that's the goal, right? And so the big, the big idea here with all, all of these things is just I put some big themes that are in each of these groups of chapters. There are definite shifts. So for sure, like chapters 2 and 3, for instance, we're going to see today that they go really close with the first chapter where Jesus introduces himself in the vision and kind of reveals himself through this special vision that he gives to John, and it's very much tied to the way he talks to each church. So they're very closely tied to each other. And we saw last week, this is a letter to the churches. So the book starts with a letter that he's writing, addressing seven churches, and it ends. If we go all the way to chapter 22, we saw that last week. Uh, the name, <clears throat> not the names of each church, but it does say this is the letter that John is writing to the churches. So it closes that way. And what that does for us is it really invites us to, whenever we read one part of the book, one of the letters, part of chapter 4, something in chapter 6, 7, whatever, we want to think of it as, okay, how does this fit into the letter as a whole, the other parts of the letter, what has been said? And so this, this part, <clears throat> I really feel like we, we, um, we can neglect a little bit as we're reading the Bible, is doing second, third, fourth, and fifth reads, where we are reading earlier parts of a book, thinking about what's already been said. Because, you know, when John writes this, or any of the books that were written in the Bible, it's not as if um, they wrote each word, and then as they were done, they hit the period, that's it. And they put it away, and like, this is the word of God, amen. We read it that way sometimes, where we just read through, go, that's nice, and then we, we stay there. But there might have been multiple drafts of this book. The letters, I, I can almost guarantee that Paul, like writing something like Romans, he definitely wrote an outline beforehand. He thought about what he wanted to say first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. He might have written it out. Well, he had somebody write it out, but he might have written it himself first in his writing, and then, ah, you know, I think I want to put this part here of my thought process. And so 
we often neglect thinking, you know what, there, there might have been a lot of thinking involved in John's part as he organized the vision, where the visions are in the book and how they fit together. And so I w as we go through the book, I want to point out just precision. I want to point out repetition. And you go, oh, well, he's, he mentioned this only here a little bit, and then it gets mentioned later on. And there's really an invitation for you and me to participate in the book, in the vision that way. So there's a lot of care written in the letter. So like any letter, let's just think of a letter. We're going to get to chapter 1 here, starting at verse 9. But um, as we read this part, I want to read from 9 down to 20, the vision about Jesus. But I want you to think about this. As we've, as we've read already part of the book and before, any letter is going to have like a feeling to it. You know, if you read a letter, is this going to be a serious letter? Is this going to be a heavy, sad letter? Is this going to be like a really great letter that we get from somebody? So if you think of messages that you've received, usually they happen more so in, in phone calls, I would say nowadays. Not so much letters, unless it's something big that needs to be explained. Sometimes a letter from somebody can already be scary. It's like, well, why didn't they just call me? They wrote me a big email? Uh-oh. You, know, you can already see it. Or just ginormous text pops up on your phone, and you're already worried about, okay, why am I getting this like this? So the question is, is, as we listen to the vision, does this sound, what kind of letter does this sound like? Does it sound like this is going to be a serious, scary letter of bad news? Does it sound like good news letter? Does it sound happy? So think about that as we read the, um, the first, uh, not first, but today, from verse 9 to 20, as John really begins his, his letter to them. So I'm going to start at verse 9. Uh, I won't really use this for now. We'll just leave this here as a reference when we, when we go back. So I'm going to read 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, to Sardis, Philadelphia. Hey, we're in this book. And Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, white wool like snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a, surface, a furnace, and his voice like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am, not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have, I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are about to take place after this. And as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, I just read that to you, and could you in any way, is there anything in there that gave you a hint as to 
how we could take this initial letter. If this sounds like this is going to be a good letter, does this sound like this is going to be the most unique letter ever written? Does this sound like it's going to be a happy letter? Maybe you don't notice anything. That's possible too, because sometimes there's there's, a, there's not a lot to go on here. But <clears throat> any inclinations that you guys have about what what what's about to come? I feel like it's a letter of him saying, um, "I'm gonna I'm gonna reveal to you things that have been hidden from man's understanding, but now because of what I did." Okay, that sounds pretty magnificent. Yeah. That sounds like a pretty, I don't want to say audacious, but well, grandiose. A, like a, a revealing of what was hidden is now being made known. Okay, is there, any, is there anything to compare this to? Like, is there any other, it's, oh, it's kind of like this book in the Bible, or this letter in the Bible. Was anything? We had little creeplets of it, I think, in the four Gospels with Jesus' coming. Like, little, little, tiny, like, fractures of... Um, our view as humans of God from the external spiritual side and here comes Jesus you know this light that's come into the world this and now it's just like he's just like boom um, mm -hmm. I'm going to show to you okay so this would be very much one of a kind in your mind yes yeah you know, I think too you see Jesus though as a mighty powerful God you know describing his eyes and his mustache and And can can I say this too? When I read yes, it, you can. You can when, sure can say it. <laughs> when I read it on my own um, this last time, just as an invitation coming into now, we're going to do it together as a class. What struck me was in John's Gospel, he refers to himself, I believe, as the disciple Jesus loved, mm -hmm. which gives us an image of the closeness of John with Jesus. But you notice his reaction when he sees. Jesus in all of his risen glory, like the fullness of his deity, he's terrified of him. So all of a sudden, the disciple who is leaning against Jesus in the Last Supper is terrified of him. I think it should give us a right image of who we're approaching when we approach God. He's God, we're not. I, I think I think it should just be a wake-up call to not take um, Jesus or the fullness of God in his trinity lightly. I, I think that we're very careless in who we're, um, who we're coming up alongside of. John, better than any of us, knows what it is to come casually up alongside Jesus. Mm -hmm. But when he's in the fullness, um, I, I think we get an image of how we're going to be too. <laughs> That sounds pretty intense. Yeah. The, I, I, I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Mm -hmm. Seven candles dance, and then one in the midst of them appearing as the Son of God. Yeah. It's a special, special little revelation there of, yeah. of a potentially Jesus physical image. Okay, we're, we're hitting all the marks here that we want to highlight, which is this, is this is a very unique opening to any letter or book. There's nothing like this 
Ezekiel does have, we're going to see this in a second, Ezekiel has some things that are similar where he received a revelation from an angel. Daniel is the closest to something like this where a couple times in his book he, he receives a vision from an angel and he falls down and he almost worships the angel and the angel has to say, stop it. There's something very similar to this where he sees something like this and it's shocking. And it's usually because he's receiving something pretty great. And yes, similar to what you said, Pam, this is the greatest revelation of of, uh, of God so far in terms of Jesus, what he's up to, what he's doing. It's magnificent. It should kind of make us go, oh my goodness, what is about to come our way? Right? It's a grand entrance where he's, he's falling down as if he's dead. So some, something pretty big is, is coming, is going to be revealed. So this letter has, it starts off very, very grandiose, like you guys said, and it gives you all these hints that this is going to be major. Look how similar this is to, um, in Daniel, if you can, if you're able to hold your Bibles open in two places at once. Daniel's vision, there's something very similar in Daniel chapter 10. I'll wait for you guys to get there, Daniel 10. All right, so Daniel 10, after Daniel received quite a big vision, he, um, he wants to know more, and so he, he's fasting and he's seeking God. But just listen to this whole scene un unfold, starting in verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, I was mourning for three weeks. I ate no treats, no meat or wine entered my, my mouth. I didn't anoint myself at all. Basically, he didn't shower for a full three weeks. And on the 24th day of the first month, I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris. He's in, he's in Babylon. And I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. Another man <coughs> with a robe with a chest or some something wrapped around his body. His body was like barrel and his face like the appearance of lightning, so very shiny. His eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sound of his words was like the sound of a multitude. So it's very similar. Not exactly the same, but just like awe-inspiring, right? And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. And I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me, and my radiant appearance was fearfully changed. I retained no strength. And then I heard the sound of his words, as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and sent me trembling on my hands and knees and said to me, Oh, Daniel. And he kind of tells him, don't worry, fear not. Very similar to what John experiences in the vision that he gets. So it's, it's not exactly the same, but in terms of, you know, what have other prophets experienced? We're getting close to the same kind of response people get when they encounter the divine. In this case, in Daniel's case, it was just Gabriel. Not just, but it was the mighty angel. And so there are similarities to when you're about to receive a visit from, a, from somebody and receive something special. It's big, it's impactful, and it causes people physically to want to just prostrate themselves and just kind of humble themselves. So something along the lines of what you said, Pam. And so in terms of Jesus, we've seen Jesus very humbly walk around the earth, be born. Some people do kneel before him, but sometimes the disciples don't even recognize him. Or they just treat him like 
any other person, you know, Peter casting him aside when he says he was, you know, kind of like the Messiah, but I'm going to die. And Peter saying, Jesus, no, like trying to correct Jesus. Like, Jesus in the Gospels is very relatable, very down to earth, humble, willing to be spit on, hit, etc. He's performing a different role in those places. And these angelic beings who don't even have the status of Jesus, they get much more respect in the prophets as, as we see like Daniel. So now when Jesus is disclosing more of himself, yes, there is like a magnificence and an awe and a shock and just amazement. It's like, I don't, I don't even belong here in this room with you right now, right? So there is, that, that does seem to be happening for John. He's being told here to write this to the churches, to the seven churches. And it doesn't seem like it's just the seven churches in mind. It's let all the churches listen to this. This is for my people, but I'm going to take seven churches to give a specific message to, and that message is going to apply to the rest of you. I think that's what we're going to see coming. So in the vision, back here in Revelation, in this vision that we have about, about Jesus, picking up at verse 12, I'd like to, uh, to look at as we, as we see him, Jesus described a little bit, is there anything in these verses, 12 through 16, this paragraph, that stick out to you in any way, right? So think, think about that as I keep rambling on here. So just these details such as the, the robe, the sash, or maybe the color of his hair. Does, it, does, it, does that seem like, huh, that's interesting, Jesus with white hair. Is this vision meant to tell you exactly the appearance of Jesus for all time? Is this like Jesus saying, hey, actually, I know you guys saw me with brown hair on earth, but I actually have white hair. Is that, is that the goal of this vision as he reveals himself? You know, the, the clothes that he's wearing, eyes like fire. That just means he had red eyes. Is this, this, is this trying to just describe his physical appearance? Or is this trying to tell us something about his very nature? I, I think Jamie says, you know, from the beginning when Jesus came to earth as a baby, it was all human uh, characteristics. And, uh, but here, you know, his, his white hair is saying about his wisdom. It's, it's given us a clue of, it's, it's a, he's God-man, but I see him as much more godly than a man. You know, his eyes as wisdom, and, you know, his, his, <coughs> his uh, just each part of the clothing has a, a different significance that's supposed to, you know, show us that he is the awesome king of kings and lord of lords. You know? Yeah, we have, um, we have some things that we associate like for example you associated white hair with wisdom there is that in the book of proverbs right so that that is an imagery but probably something closer so i wouldn't say that you're i, I would say you're onto something carol but in addition i would say the ancient of days is also described uh, at times as one who has this long white hair and what that seems to communicate is like a timelessness the ancient one it relates to his eternity and so jesus is described in a a couple of these images as godlike without saying Jesus is God he has these qualities of God like the shining face that you can't really look at that's a God quality and isn't white also a color of pure cleanness like purity like when when the snow yeah. falls and everything is just white it just covers over all blemishes you know you're just yeah there so. there could be something to his moral with, with the color white this, this sounds an awful lot like, and let me just, I'm not going to tell you where it is. I just want you to listen, listen to me read it so you can see the, 
the, the, the similarity. This is a vision also that this prophet receives. Um, and then over the expanse of the head of these angels was like a throne. And the throne was like sapphire. And above the throne was a son of man, a human figure. And upward from his waist up, it was just like shiny metal with fire all around it. And then downward was like fire also and bronze-like. And the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of the rain. So was this brightness all around. And when I saw such a thing, I fell down on my face. Like that's the prophet Ezekiel as he first encounters Yahweh in chapter one. So there's, there are these similarities from all the different prophets. And here Jesus is, John's like taking, it's like he's reaching back and he's taking these different images of God and, and we see Jesus now in those terms. One who has fire around him, a shiny face, white gleaming hair, someone that's hard to look at and that causes you to want to bow down. You were going to say something, Dennis. The, 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 the fire and like bronze, and it, it just reminds me of uh, how you know, Proverbs anyway talks about refining through <laughs> fire. And you know, he's already refined. Uh, and you know you can't get any purer, any any cleaner than that. Yep, it's been uh, tested. It's strong. Yeah, yeah. And, and the white hair, and I'm thinking, if I was looking at something that bright, would I even notice the hair? But it must be really white that you know, because it's specifically called out. Yeah, was it like was it moving? You know, is there yeah. is there a wind blowing in that heavenly sanctuary, and you can kind of see like a little bit of the hair, or was it just yeah. totally static? You know, so there's. It brings up the imagination yeah. as, as we think about it. And I, that's part of what this language is meant to do for us, is to make us slow down and think a little bit and try to picture it in our heads, but also reflect on the rest of the Bible. And was John one of the three on the Mount of Transfiguration? Was he there also? Did we see Jesus um, at the Transfiguration? Peter, James... But I think that was the Zebedee brothers. Okay. I don't think that was the, the younger John. Because I was going to say, like, um, there, those three saw a little bit of it, but it wasn't enough to put the fear in. I think when John sees it in its full, it puts the fear of God in you. Like, you're God, I'm not. Here. Yeah. So, tagging along with this fear... Uh, the last verse, verse 16, here, <clears throat> this was the Bible I'm reading from, the ESV. It says, his right hand he held seven stars, and it says, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Did we all, <sighs> I almost lost my mind. We all see that on this side anyway. Whoops, I just want to highlight it. Right there, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. The NIV, if you look over here, has out of his mouth was a sharp, or coming out of his mouth was a sharp two-edged sword. Very, very similar type of thing. Both both Bibles have that. Does um, how does that does that do anything for you? Does that go? Oh. That's nightmarish. <laughs> Some sort of sharp object coming out of somebody's mouth. What is that? What do you think that is meant to invoke? 
right? We have all this godlike qualities, purity, moral purity, greatness, power. And then this one, what, what does this one do in your mind? How does it impact you? Yeah, that that's yeah. scary. It's judgment, God's judgment, not conviction. Okay, so you're not you're not taking that he literally had a sword in his mouth, mm-hmm. and why not? Um, well, don't doesn't uh, the scripture say uh, about how the best of the tongue is? Like a, you know, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's like God's word. Well, tongue is like a, the fires of hell are on it. Double-edged sword. Like, it, it doesn't say double-edged sword, though, too. We're, we're going to get to that, but okay. unless you can name it specifically, I'm not going to grant you that one. <laughs> it's somewhere in the New Testament. It's in James. James. Yeah. Well, J- James, uh, does, it, does it say a sword there? I know it talks um, about the flames of hell being on, and it's like a rudder that can guide a whole ship. Right. And it's powerful, but does it name it as a sword? I can't remember, to be honest. I'm not. I'm not trying to be like yeah. rhetorical. I'm not. <clears throat> I'm not remembering. But my my question has more to do less with the meaning at the moment. We'll we'll investigate that, but more so with why why would you not assume it's just a physical quality of his that he just has metal, shiny, sharp objects like a tooth coming out of his mouth. Well, because part of it we're thinking that doesn't that that's weird. One, but you're right. There might be scriptural reasons why this is a symbol, right? And this is key for the whole book. When we look at a, at a vision like this, we're not looking at and we're not going. Okay, he literally has fire inside of his eyeballs, and his 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 skin literally shines. Where I, I don't think that's what John's trying to communicate is the physical appearance of Jesus, but he's using this vision to reveal something about his nature, his quality, and just realize that that's the way you're treating the first vision of the book. There are a series of visions from the beginning here through here. These are all visions that John is having. And I'm going to propose that the same way you just approach that sword out of the mouth, fire and all this stuff, as symbolic, uh, that might be the way that the, most of the book makes sense, is that they are symbols that are communicating something. Right, and that's a very different way of reading the book instead of taking most things as straightforward. So that's part of the competing views of reading this book. Is it, is it really just giving us a straightforward vision of exactly what is going to transpire or what has transpired? Or is it meant for us to be a little bit more careful and not take the first maybe surface meaning that we're reading and dig a little bit deeper? Okay, so that's why I was probing you about that, is that why wouldn't you say it's coming out of the mouth? And sometimes the answer is just, because that seems crazy. It seems crazy to you, but that doesn't mean it's not true, that he couldn't have been with a sword coming out of his mouth. We need a better reason. And I would say the better reason is we're going to look to Scripture to see maybe other allusions where it's not the case. So I gave you an example last week of the seal on the foreheads, where Ezekiel used the same imagery to talk about a figurative seal, a symbolic seal. So there's scriptural precedence for these visions or that particular vision being symbolic. And it's just like this one. It's going to keep repeating. We're going to see images and symbols from the Old Testament show up in this book, and I don't think they're meant to be taken at face value. I don't think John wanted you to sit down and contemplate what kind of sword was coming out of his mouth. Can you imagine a a new Christian opening up there and seeing that? It's like, 
Jesus, you know, yeah, Th that's right. And that's, that's the other thing. Without Revelation, you almost have a very different Jesus in the New Testament. Yeah. This book gives us, I think, the, what we need to see Jesus in, in his full spectrum. He's God. And we see Jesus acting very much like a humble servant in the Gospels. We do see his divinity at times with miracles, with the wisdom, with compassion, with kindness. But he doesn't come off, except for some of his words, he doesn't come off as like, look who I am, and like, you know, and scare people that way. But here in John, he's more unleashing a little bit more of himself. And um, let's look at this word out of the mouth thing, because it actually comes from the Old Testament. So if you could turn to Isaiah, Isaiah's going to hold Isaiah and Ezekiel. They're going to carry a lot of these images that we find in the book of Revelation. So turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Here, and then um, we'll stop when we see it, okay, when we notice it. Chapter 11, verse 1, this is a very messianic chapter. Verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That means this is David's dad, so this is a son of David. This is another way to reference the Messiah. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by, uh, he shall judge the poor, but, sorry, or decide disputes by what his ears hear merely. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and with, uh, decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked." Now there you have something very, very similar, not exactly word for word, but you have this notion of something coming out of the mouth, a, a violent object, so, so to speak, right? A rod that comes out and it strikes. And the context there is judging with righteousness, judging with right between, between the two. A ruler who can do true justice met out what's truly right, and he does it by the words that he speaks. His words, his laws govern the people well and accordingly, and it deals with the wicked. So the part of the prophecy was that there is coming a time where a ruling son of David will take place, will take his throne, and he will give out right rules and judgments. He won't be wrong. He won't be prideful. He won't be bribed. He won't have, you know, um, injustice in him. So that, that's, that's one place. There's another place, right? Again, a very messianic text, chapter 49. If you want to uh, jump, so we're, if you're in Isaiah, chapter 11, just jump a few chapters down to chapter 49. Here is another chapter. If you remember from Isaiah, I know it's going to be hard to pull back, uh, go back in time, but this is a section of the servant of God, the servant of Yahweh, who we saw prefigures Jesus is prophecy about that figure, a messianic person. And this is one of the sections in Isaiah that talk about him in specific, and actually he's talking here. So verse, two, uh, verse 1 of 49. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord, or Yahweh, has called me from the womb, and from the body of my mother he named my name. And he made my mouth like a sharp sword, 
In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, and in his quiver he hid me away. And there doesn't tell you what exactly that means, but the imagery is there again, that his mouth has a sharpness, and supposedly it's going to be the words that he speaks have effect, and they met out judgment and righteousness, and they, they're correct. They're, they're, they're really precise. So the, the imagery of a mouth, the sword coming out of the mouth is used in the Old Testament. I just gave you two examples right, in one book. And it has to do with metting out, with governing, with righteousness. And Isaiah 11 is huge because that is the Messiah, as well as Isaiah 49. So when we go back to Revelation and we talked about what does the letter sound like so far, well, it sounds fantastical because this grand vision is, is, is starting the book off. And it's about Jesus, and it causes him to be shocked. Jesus has qualities of God. And Jesus is going to be revealing a message to be written down for the churches. So the fact that he has a description of his mouth being like a sword, that gives you the sense that this is going to be a rough book. right? If, if part of his description is, I have a sword coming out of my mouth and I've come to give you a message, he's telling you of the nature, somewhat something about the nature of this message is going to be piercing. It's going to be something that's going to bring, it's going to met things out, right? It's, it's going to be right. And so when we look at the these, I don't have this designed well, but if we had a whole other whiteboard, we look at the seven letters to the churches. Out of the seven churches, how many are doing well in Jesus' eyes? Two. Only two are doing good. And so most of his message to the five churches is kind of rough. I, I gave you something to read along the lines of, I think, maybe three or four verses from the letters that, that I not. And, and it's interesting. Some of them are kind of harsh, right? If, if, did you, I don't know if you had a chance to read those, but just here, here's a, fl a flavor for some of these letters. So the very, um, the very first one, let me read to you verse 5 of chapter 2. I think this was one of the verses I asked you to read. After he tells them, he tells all of them, he knows what's going on. And then for five of them, he really gives them something like pretty hard. Not just like, you know, guys, you're doing well, but let me just encourage you. Keep trying, you know, good job. Go team. I love you guys. And he, he does do some of that. But he also says, if things don't change, it's done. Like your time is done. Not, not as in you're not going to be my people anymore. You're not going to be my church. He just says, if you don't, if you don't change things around, it's not going to be good for you. Just look how I dealt with my people Israel. When they didn't follow me, it went awful for them. Look at verse 5. So remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, right? Repent. Jesus is telling the church not to repent and get saved again, but repent in terms of stop doing what you're doing, right? Repent and do the works you did at first. Because if you do not, Here's, here's the kicker I wanted you guys to see. If you do not change, I'm going to come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I'm coming toward you. So this is, you see that the vision about Jesus, the vision he gives of himself, powerful, eternal, all-knowing, equal with God, is setting us up to feel the weight of his message to the church. I'm not just talking to you like, hey, I want to give you a recommendation. I'm some sort of special church consultant. Let me give you my expert opinion. He's talking to you as like the ruler of the world. 
right? The only one who has the authority to remove the light of the church and say, you're not going to be my witness anymore. We don't know exactly what that means. If it means that we're going to become ineffective, useless, or just die out, which they did, by the way. The churches eventually died out. That's why um, there aren't, the church isn't established in Turkey today, which is where these churches were. Um, however, they, you know, this isn't known, but they did. It seems like initially the very first generation that got these letters, it seems like they responded really well to this, to this uh, correction from Jesus. So much so that there's a letter. Um, so the Roman Empire, the Caesar would send, he would change some laws, and they started implementing these, these worship laws to worship Caesar. And uh, Turkey, Asia Minor, had become, the churches had grown so strong in that first century that one of the church leaders wrote a letter back to Caesar that we have. I'll, I need to get it for you so that we can read it maybe more fully. But basically in the letter, he says, no dice, Caesar. We're not going to do that here at, at the cost of our lives. And so there was a, for a while, this really did do a number. And the Christians responded really well for the most part. Of, the, of this whole region, not just these seven churches, but they did respond well. Rome eventually came in really heavy-handed and just uh, gave, gave it to the Christians in the first couple of centuries. But um, that church of Ephesus is that known that they did that too? That they, I, how hard he comes down on them? Did... I don't. I don't know if, how much we know of the uh, history of the individual churches throughout those first two centuries. We don't have a whole lot of documents. We just. Mm-hmm. I don't even know where this guy was in the. Uh, in, in Turkey, I just remember when I was reading through a commentary on this, like that fascinated me, that that was a historical reality at, at the time. Uh, so just I, what I wanted to see how closely tied these chapters are, the revelation of Jesus in chapter 1 and him being God himself with all the authority and power, but the tone is really, okay, something really biting is about to come from his mouth to us. And not just the letters, but these whole chapters, this whole vision has the tone of something the churches need to hear. They need to respond well. They need to repent, right? Maybe they're not doing what they, that's what it seems like in Ephesus. They're not doing what they should be doing. Very few are. And Jesus' warnings, I gave, so what did you guys think about those verses that I gave you to read about? Hey, if you don't, then this. Were you able to read those? If not, we'll, we'll read some of these here together. Should, would it be worth it for us to try to read uh, some of these right now? Because we, we only got a few minutes anyway. Okay, so the church in Ephesus, we read that one, which is, hey, if you do not repent, and I want you to notice that it says, I will come to you. I will visit you. He's not talking about his return to the earth. He's talking about a special visit. And this is going to be common. So jump down to the church in Pergamum. And this, this letter starts in verse 12 of the same chapter. And look to verse 16. We're going to read this one too. Verse 16 says, therefore, repent. If not, if you don't do what I'm telling you, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. War against the church. I'm going to use, and here's that exact image of the sword. Jesus, you know, in, in the Gospels, it's, I just don't feel like we have the complete Jesus unless we start bringing in the rest of Revelation which is what the Word of God does to us, right? It reveals to us who Jesus is. And, and Jesus is God. He is the same God of the Old Testament. He, he is the God that showed mercy, grace, and kindness. 
and offered himself up as a sacrifice, but he's also judge, ruler, and leader. And he will not have it anything short of that. He's not a pushover. Oh, you know, you did your best. I guess that's what counts. You know, just keep trying. Jesus goes straight at it, and he sees what's really happening. He says, that has to change. And if it doesn't, we're going to have problems. Isn't this, isn't this crazy? I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. Uh, jump to the next one, Thyatira. Um, th this is, this is, okay, well, you're, you're getting the thing. Verse 21, he speaks directly to a group that's been tolerated within the church community. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent and she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and everyone who commits adultery with her, I'm going to throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am who searches the heart and the mind, and I give to each of you according to your works. There's Jesus again coming with sword and mouth. I know exactly what you're up to. I know the good, and I know the bad, and this bad needs to change. Right? I won't put up with it. That's, that's a different kind of Jesus than oftentimes we, we are given. <clears throat> um, quite sound like how he treated the woman in adultery. Uh, it, it, the, the woman at the well, right? Well, the woman at the well or the, the woman that they came in. Chap yeah, you're right. The one where he draws a line in the sand. Yeah. and um, He gives you a little hint there of like, you know, go and sin no more yeah, to exactly. some. Not, maybe not to her. But you're right. It's, it's just not a complete, right? We don't want to just take Revelation and say, this is what Jesus is like. Yeah. We take everything together, and this is just adding to our... But what we're, we're seeing in that very first vision, the vision of the risen Jesus, is he's described as not just a resurrected human, but God, Yahweh. The one who knows everything, who judges rightly, and the one who, when Uzzah stuck out his hand, God was like, you know, no, you're not doing what I'm telling you to do. Uh, but the one who's also, he's the lamb who died for the very sins of the world. So it's, it's everything. And so th this, this Jesus, we need to take full weight in. So when we read the letters of chapters 2 and 3, we read them in light of chapter 1, the vision of the resurrected God-man, all authority and all power with all the weight. He says, I have the keys of death. So he can tell people, you're going to die if you don't obey me. He's the only one that can put those kinds of threats out there to the church. And so we, we're just highlighting one aspect right here. When we, as we go through the letters, we're going to see a complete picture of, of Jesus taking care of the church, of Jesus cleaning the lampstand. So the imagery, let, let's finish the, the first chapter. I want to make sure I, I end actually with the first chapter completed. We only really read down to verse 16. Let's, re, let's read verses 16, uh, 17 down to the end. I'll just read it as, as it's written up there. 17 down. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He laid his hand on me and he said, fear not, right? I am the first and the last, meaning <laughs> I, I am eternal and I am the ultimate cause of all things, the first things and the last things, the living one, right? I, I died. I actually died. This is, might be the shocker of this paragraph. The God man says, I died. It still blows my mind. Uh, and behold, I'm alive, and I have the keys of death and of Hades, which is the word for hell. I rule over, this is another little vision that we don't fully grasp. Jesus says, I am the ruler over hell. I didn't give this dominion to Satan. He doesn't, that's actually a very 
tr tradition, pagan theory that Satan is kind of like the king of hell and then God's up in heaven and they're at war. That's not in the Bible. The Bible has Jesus in charge of hell and the lake of fire, and he sends people down there, including the dragon, including Satan. Satan doesn't rule over anything down there. Actually, when he gets down there, the vision and the prophets, it's like, this guy, we all thought he was amazing, and that's him? Like, all the other rulers of the world are like, that's nothing, right, when he gets uh, judged. Anyway, write, therefore, the things you have seen, the things that are, and the things that are to take place after this. And as for, oh, we did read this, sorry. I'm sorry, now that I'm reading this, I'm like, we, we read that all initially. Um, and so that is the, the ground for, we're going to take these letters seriously. Jesus has something to say, and he's putting his full weight behind it, right? He's given us instructions in the Gospels. He has spoken to us through Paul's letters, but there is still something left that Jesus needs to give to the church. And so it's big, and the whole letter is the letter. Not just chapters 2 and 3, but 2 and 3 really start us off with, if we don't take this seriously, there are serious consequences. And then we're going to get some encouragement. So it's very similar to Isaiah where there's judgment, right? We read in the book, first half, 1 through 39. It's just like, it's inevitable, people. Just accept it. But do not lose sight of the hope that we have in our God who's faithful and who will bring us through whatever we're going to go through. So very similarly, Revelation starts off hot, a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Repentance, if you don't, if you don't, but then we're going to get these visions that really entrench us in the hope for God's people because he's also speaking to a church that's under pressure, that feels persecuted, that is isolated. There is no social media you're isolated in your village. You don't know how the rest of the Christians are doing. You might think everybody else is struggling like you are. Is the gospel spreading anywhere? Are we failures? This is a vision that goes, let me, let's tear the veil of heaven and let's see what's really going on, right? Because even today, we can look at who is in charge of the major countries of the world. None of them will really go and say, well, there the gospel is really changing that president's life. We don't, we don't see that across the world just like they didn't. And so this book continues to offer the same hope for Christians. Like, who's really ruling the world? What, is there any difference being made anywhere? And we're, Jesus is going to show our kingdom, guys, is very different than the earthly kingdoms. We operate differently. And that's going to be the neat challenge of the book, is the message is going to go straight to the heart of the churches, what they're supposed to be doing. And I think it makes the book very applicable to the church, no matter what time they're living in. It's going to be a message for them. So... We did some of the first chapter. We're going to get into the letters. We're going to read them as, as much as possible as seven. So this week, read chapters two and three. And I, and I do want to talk about when we look at letters, not just one letter. I want to think, think about, okay, we got through seven. How did they all sound like together? Did it feel overall positive? So similar to what we did with the vision, when we think about how does this impact me? What were things that stood out to you, obviously? Um, we'll, we'll try to tackle all seven as a unit. And, uh, and here's a hint. I, it looks like to me the seventh letter, the last letter, it seems to summarize everything and give a general snapshot. That's what, that's what the seventh letter seems to do to me. Is there's, they're each one giving a different aspect of various things and they paint a picture as a whole of the church and what the church needs to hear. And then the last one, Jesus kind of says, I'm knocking at the door. Is anyone going to open this door? Because if you open the door... Meaning, if you repent, I'll come in and we'll dine. 
right? If, if there is repentance there, we, we, can, we can dine together. But the implication is from the rest of the letter is if, if you do not repent, if you don't open that door, I'm, I'm sitting here, right? Here are my words. Here's my vision. And that's, I think that's going to set the groundwork for the vision of Revelation to be like Jesus knocking on the door of the church, saying, here's, here's what I have to tell you. How do you respond? Will you receive this from me? All right. So that, that's the gist. I'm giving you samplings here of how we're going to go. Read, read those letters. We'll talk about the letters next Sunday.